following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our gospel reading today comes from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's Matthew 1, 22 and 23. And those two short verses are at the center of the Christmas story. And they start out simply enough, with a clear and basic idea. But then they also expand beyond that basic idea into depths of meaning and understanding that I think could be the source of probably a whole lifetime of study and reflection and meditation. Because the contents of these two short verses, uh, when you start to think about them, span multiple centuries and multiple religious traditions. They crisscross several languages and they evolve in meaning as they do. And uh, it may be that before we're done here today, we'll get to touch on just a little bit of that expansiveness that could be found in this passage. But we could, and for the most part we will, reduce the meaning of Christmas, of Christ's advent, to just the last four words, God is with us. Now when I say reduce, I don't mean subtract anything from it. I mean uh, sort of concentrate it the way you would... Um, when you're cooking, maybe make a reduction of something. So we're going to make a, a, a Christmas theological sauce <laughs> out of the idea that God is with us. Because in one sense, that's all that you need to know. God is with us. God is with you. God is with me. God is with us. And at the center of that withness, which is a word that I made up just for this sermon, uh, in this part of the gospel story, at least, is, of course, Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed king, the savior of the whole world, coming to earth as the full embodiment of God as a baby. So that on the very first page of Matthew's gospel, uh, which means it's the very first page of the Christian scriptures, we read the words, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. And eventually, that passage goes on to say that they name him, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
And by the way, the presence of God, uh, the, the withness of God as embodied in Jesus is also the way that the Gospel of Matthew ends. So I talked about the very first page of the Gospel. If we were to go to the very last page of the Gospel, we would find Jesus, after the resurrection, talking to his disciples and reassuring them this way. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is not a mistake or a coincidence uh, that Matthew's Gospel begins with God is with us and ends with Jesus saying, I am with you. That is just um, literary skill and, and also a deep and wonderful theological reality. So at the beginning of this story, the child Jesus is born to a, a Jewish woman into a Jewish tradition, and he grew to be a Jewish rabbi and become to be understood as the Jewish Messiah. And famously, that woman to which Jesus was born, Mary, his mother, was a... Virgin, that's right. You can say that word in church. It's said in church quite often, actually. That's why Matthew writes at the beginning, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he goes on to quote the prophet, Isaiah, to be specific, directly. Isaiah 7, 14. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which Matthew then goes on to explain means God is with us. Now, I think that this a little movement in this text, warrants a bit of a diversion into the, uh, the weeds of biblical language and translation. In other words, let's explore a little bit of the expansiveness that I hinted at earlier. We're going to stick with the, the reduction um, uh, of God being with us as the central meaning of Christmas. But, uh, if you will, I'm going to uh, step off the main hiking trail for a moment into a little scenic area. Um, because I do think it's worth it. And I hope that you'll come along with me. Sometimes the best stuff on a hike is not on the main trail, but in the scenic area. But if you don't want to come out to the scenic area, you could maybe find a rock on the trail and just sort of sit there and wait. And the rest of us will be back in a few minutes. Um, And there are worse things to do than spend a few minutes reflecting on the piece that we just left off with, which is what? God is with us. And if you're tired of hearing those words, I'm sorry, that's not the last time. So here's the diversion. For those of you who are coming uh, along with me off the main trail, I want you to take a look at what's on the screen here. This is Isaiah 7:14, as it is quoted in Matthew 1:23, and it says, "Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel." Now, not everybody is um, predisposed to this kind of activity, but I bet some of you went and opened the Bible and found Isaiah 7:14. And notice that it's a little bit different. So for those of you who didn't do that, I'll put that on the screen as well. The original Hebrew text says this. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. So they're different, aren't they? That's right. Emmanuel is spelled with an I (laughs) when it's based on the Hebrew word. And it's spelled with an E when it's based on the Greek word. As all of you immediately noticed. There is a difference there, and we will get to it. But I want to say that this is almost always the case. Uh, if you're studying the Bible and you see a, a New Testament, a Christian um, author quoting from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, uh, very often, if you go back and find that passage in the, in the Old Testament, it will look a little different. And um, the, the reason for that is, uh, well, you might be tempted in this case especially to think this might be some nefarious adaptation by an overzealous and dogmatic Christian scholar. 
Um, but that would, not that those people don't exist, but that would probably be um, an oversimplification of what's actually happening here, because what's actually happening here is um, just something to do with the nature of the biblical languages. I'll explain this uh, in a way that I hope is brief and, brief and um, coherent, <coughs> because I do think it matters when we look at texts like this. So <coughs> the Jewish Bible, again, we call it the Old Testament, is recorded originally in the Hebrew language. But by the time of Jesus and the apostles, people were uh, speaking Aramaic and writing and reading in Greek. They were not using Hebrew as much um, anymore. And so in order that the Jewish scriptures could be read and used in worship and understood by people who at the time were modern people, uh, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. happens to have the fancy name of the Septuagint, but you don't need to care about that. You just need to know that that translation occurred. And that that translation would have been the Bible that Jesus and Paul and all the characters in the New Testament would have been most familiar with. And in fact, uh, at least as far as I understand it, that would have been the case for centuries by then. The Hebrew version of the Hebrew Bible was not in um, much use and hadn't been for some time. But for us, centuries later, even later, uh, we read the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, as translated directly from the Hebrew. We skip that intermediate step. And so we don't take the, you know, the, the Septuagint and translate that into English um, to get our Old Testament text. But when a New Testament text cites an Old Testament text, it is based on that Greek translation. Does that make any sense? Am I being clear? All right. Now... <clears throat> Uh, on the face of it, you might think the decision to use the original Hebrew text to translate the Old Testament is clearly the way we should go. We should definitely do that because that gets us closer in some ways to the original uh, inspired documents, right? But there's another factor um, to consider when you look at old ancient texts like this, and that is the age of the, the copies that we have, <laughs> And in fact, the copies that we have of the Greek translations of the Jewish Bible are much older than the copies that we have of the Hebrew text. Okay. If that doesn't mean anything to you, if you don't care at all, congratulations, you are probably in the majority. But it is something that we should factor in. Because when you're looking at an ancient document, one of the things you have to consider uh, when trying to determine how close it is to the very original version of it is how old it is and how many years or centuries removed from the original it is, okay? So it's very likely that the copies of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible are, in some sense, actually closer to the very original documents than the Hebrew ones, even though there's been a, a language shift present there. Anyway, all of this is complicated and difficult, and it's, it's very likely that you might have to be a gigantic nerd to even care about it at all. But I bring it all up because I want to address with you the elephant in the room, um, which is uh, the difference between saying that uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son versus the young woman is with child and shall bear a son. So in Hebrew, the, the word used there, the, the word in, in question is Alma, and what it means is a woman who is of childbearing age who has not yet given birth. So you're, you're doing the, um, the relationship math in your head right now, and you're realizing that, that that might be 
a virgin or it might not. So it seems to me that translating from the Hebrew into English to use the phrase young woman is is a quite legitimate translation. Um, But of course it's a gigantic source of controversy because we Christians can't go two feet in any direction without arguing with each other and yelling about stuff. And so, you may be interested to learn that Isaiah 7.14 is something of a litmus test for people who want to decide whether a translation of the Bible is good enough or not. Because um, uh, one group of people very much wants to see the word virgin in Isaiah 7.14 when probably the Hebrew text doesn't exactly call for it. All right, I've tipped my hand slightly. I'll try not to do that too much. Uh, The word in the Greek, in the Septuagint, is parthenos. And the original meaning, here's the, here's the really weird part of this. The original meaning of that word is also just young woman. But because language evolves over time, it did come to mean, by the time of Jesus and the apostles, virgin. And so, why does that matter? Well, it matters because I think it's a legitimate translation in the Greek. <laughs> in other words, when Matthew is quoting from the prophet Isaiah to use the word virgin. In both cases, we have a legitimate translation decision, and we are left to decide for ourselves what the meaning is. And so, a more conservative or traditionalist viewpoint, given all of this uh, linguistic linguistic stuff, would be that uh, the, the people were expecting, at the time of Jesus, that the Messiah would be born to a virgin, and so the Messiah was born to a virgin. A maybe less conservative or traditionalist view, uh, a view that in fact might make some of you gasp aloud, um, is that the people um, who wrote the New Testament documents were expecting a virgin birth, and so when they identified Jesus as the Messiah, they wrote that part back into the story. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) That may not be where you are, that may not be where I am, but that's actually not the question that I'm interested in answering right now. Here's the thing. You... You haven't come to church today for a lesson in historical textual criticism. In fact, you may be very glad to know that it is now over. (laughs) What you probably came to church today seeking is the truth. And so you may be asking, uh, so, Mr. Graduate School, uh, what is the truth? How do you, Pastor, answer the question at hand, which is, was the mother of Jesus a virgin or was she just a young woman? In other words, how do you answer the question, is the virgin birth real? Is it true? Now, I know that many of you have that question because I've talked to many of you about that question and some others. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, um, and this is not intended as a criticism for anybody who falls into this camp, but the the virgin birth seems to be the part of the creed that people have the most trouble with. And, And I... Again, it's not, a, it's not a criticism. I just find it somewhat amusing that creator of the universe, check. Um, resurrected from the dead, no problem. Born of a virgin, whoa there, buddy. Slow down. I am not signing on for that one. <laughs> Which, by the way, is okay. We often talk about how sometimes uh, when we say the creed, we find ourselves in the place of needing or wanting to change the punctuation. In other words, to put a question mark at the end of one or two of the lines instead of a period that seems so decisive and assured. And that's okay. I I want to affirm this idea. You have the right to question um, whatever you've been taught, including anything, maybe especially anything you've been taught by me. Uh, And this is one of the lines of the creed where people tend to want to exercise the right to ask the question, is that really true or not? And so I know that you want my answer to the question, is the virgin birth true? Are you ready for my answer? 
Um, here's the answer to the question. Is the virgin birth true? God is with us. <laughs> is the Hebrew text true and more accurate, or is the Greek text true and more accurate? God is with us. Did God give this, Isaiah, uh, this prophecy to, uh, to Isaiah about Jesus, or was it actually about the birth of King Hezekiah? God is with us. Is Christian teaching based on entirely pure truth at all times, or is it just confused by some linguistic artifacts? God is with us. The beginning and the end of the gospel is that God is with us. The beginning and the end of Matthew's gospel, as I've already told you, is that God is with us, and I think the beginning and the end of the gospel itself is that God is with us. Now there's all kinds of truth and beauty and mystery and redemption found in the middle. But the beginning and the end of this story is that God is with us. And so I, I understand, I know that you want me to give you the right answer. Capital T, capital R, capital I, the right answer. In a world that seems more and more polarized with each passing day, it is quite easy for us to become infatuated with arguments about doctrine and tradition and translation and interpretation and ancient sources, and we would love very much to know which interpretive group we are supposed to fall into because that helps us to know who is not in our group. And that kind of thing is killing us. <coughs> and so it is not at all that I don't think it matters what is exactly true about Mary at the time she gave birth to Jesus. I think it does matter. But do you know what I think matters a thousand times more? That regardless of where you fall on the answer to that question, it does not change the fact that God is with us. God is with you. God is with me. God is with us. And so I think rather than making our model for belief and behavior, um, you know, some systematic theologian who seems to have all the answers figured out in a way that's entirely airtight and watertight and doesn't ever spill anything on the ground, I would rather look to one of the characters in this story as an example. In fact, I want to look to, to Joseph as a model for what to do. Now, I have a whole extra sermon about Joseph that I accidentally wrote and then deleted. <laughs> and I put it in this document. I have this, this document on my computer called Sermon Graveyard, which is <laughs> where when something doesn't fit, I just, and I, I can't bring myself to really delete it, I, I copy it and paste it over into this document that I will never look at again. Um, it makes me feel slightly better about deleting all that stuff that I just spent time writing. At any rate, I'll give you the very short version of this, which is that uh, when, Jesus, uh, excuse me, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And what he did, because what the angel commanded him to do, is that he named Jesus as the Savior, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. It means God saves. And the significance of Joseph naming this accidental child that did not belong to him, which he thought was a sign of deep shame and embarrassment to him and to his family. To name that child as the Savior, I think is pretty significant. Now, I understand Joseph does not uh, exactly express um, 
a pure 21st century version of uh, proper gender roles and uh, equality and so forth. Right? There's some patriarchy baked into what he says and what is described as quite honorable that we might sort of scoff at. Um, but I think it was actually quite dignified and honorable given the culture that he was part of. And I think we ought to strive to be dignified and honorable in the culture that we're part of. And regardless of what culture anybody's part of, the idea that Joseph would say of this child, okay, that's the Savior. That's his name. I think that's pretty significant. And that's, that, that's a pretty remarkable model for us to follow. And then, of course, Jesus comes to be known by another name, Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. God is with us. Not will be, not used to be, although those are both true too, but God is with us. And that truth is not contingent upon you having the quote-unquote right answers about the virgin birth or anything else. And so I hope that you will... um, Indulge me to ask you a question, even though I refuse to answer the question that you are all asking me in your head. And the question that I have for you is this. How would you live your life differently if you actually, really, deeply, truly, in, in your bones, believe that God was with you? Think about what's happening in your life right now in this season. Think about what's happening in our city right now in this season. Think about what's happening in our country right now as much as you might prefer not to. Think about what's happening in the world right now. What would we think and say and do differently if we actually believed Emmanuel, God is with us? What if we woke up from our own dark dreams of how everything had gone wrong and identified and named the Savior in our midst. Let's take a moment and pray together. Gracious God, at this time of year, when we are so acutely aware of the darkness and the pain in our world, we are thankful to you for the glimmer of hope that is the light of the world, your Son, Jesus. And we pray that even as we struggle and wrestle with understanding and believing and knowing, that you would remind us that regardless of what we understand or know or believe, that you are with us to the end of the age. Help us to see it in our time, we pray. And even more than that, help us to bring it to our world in our time so that others can see it as well. In this Advent season, in Christmas tide, and all year round, be present with us, we pray, Jesus our Savior, in your name, amen. Well, we are um, going to sing another song or two together, and our communion table will be open during this time. Artisan's communion table is an open table, which means that it is available to all people who are seeking to follow Jesus and uh, to receive his grace. You don't need to be a member of our church or any church. You can come uh, through these middle two aisles to the table, and when it's your turn, you can take a a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups and eat it right at the table, remembering Christ's body, which is broken for you and for me, remembering Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. 
May it be the real presence of Jesus the Savior. May it be food for your hungry and weary spiritual selves. And may it be an act of communion with each other and other Christians around the world. Um, There's a member of our prayer team at the back corner of the room. If you'd like to receive prayer during this time, I encourage you to go there. As we sing, as we pray, as we take the sacrament together, let us be um, sensitive to God's Spirit. Our table's open. Come if you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.